0: I think we're good. Um, good morning again. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome, welcome. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm, I think, 66 reminds us that all the earth bows down and worship to the Lord. They sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And I think one of the cool things about being in the park is that we get to join in. Uh, we get to join in with the trees and the flowers and the squirrels and the raccoons and all those lovely things, the birds. Uh, we get to join in in praising the gods as we sing our songs we pray our prayers Um, i believe that it's just a a, a different look than our sanctuary but the earth is ultimately god's sanctuary we can praise and worship god everywhere so that's such a blessing uh if you've been tracking with us the last couple weeks we've been talking about this uh, remembrance series talking about how god calls us to remember and focusing on this idea that god calls us to remember and, and he reveals who he is so we're going through a bunch of different questions to say, what is God? You know, remember who he is, remember when, why, all these things. And the whole basis of this is that God wants us to remember because it's so easy for us to forget. We tend to look down on our situation, and look down on ourselves, when God actively wants us to look back at his faithfulness um, and then to look up at Jesus. Because if we look back at how God has been faithful, and we look up at Jesus, that's what helps us to not only survive the now, but really to thrive in the now as we go into the future. And what's interesting is, is we've gone through this series and, and, and we've gone to not only verses and places God told us to remember, <laughs> but really stories of remembrance. You know, the first one, Jesus says, remember who I am. And he identifies as Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, like, I'm not only from him, I'm not only his representative, I'm not I'm not only the one that he's chosen for this time, but I am actually the God of the Old Testament. And if you remember that story, the reaction of the people was they wanted to kill him. Um, then the next week we talked about how Jesus says, well oh, remember when, I oh, remember what I have done. And we talked about his mission, his call, about how God had called him to literally, not only be the Messiah, but God had called him to fulfill all the promises that God had made to Israel. So Jesus comes into the sanctuary, he comes before the people and he says, you know how you've been waiting for this Messiah to come. You now you've been waiting for the one to tell the good news to the poor, the broken, the downtrodden, the the aliens, the immigrants. You know how you've been waiting for God to break the chains and to set the captives free and, and proclaim the year of jubilee. Well, that Messiah you're waiting for—it's actually me. And again, the people's reaction was what—they wanted to kill him. And the reason I've been stressing this is because I think it's very important for us to hold on to this fact that the boldness of Jesus doesn't just start. I don't know, that's the the scripture. We don't need that anymore. We're good. Um, The boldness of Jesus doesn't just start at Calvary. I think a lot of times when we look at Jesus being bold and Jesus living out the faith, we look at, well, he's bold because he was so willing to die for us. But you see that Jesus, when he enters into the ministry, every single day he's entering into boldness with people who want to kill him. And I bring that up because I think it should inspire us to be bold with living our lives for Christ. It should inspire us to be bold with actually proclaiming Jesus. Because Jesus wants us to not just know what he did, but to actually do the same things that he did. That we can proclaim the good news to the people under our influence. That we can actually help people break chains and break bonds. That we can actually proclaim to people that this world is more than you see. Our God is here in front of you. Our God can live inside of you if you choose to believe. That we can proclaim, people, that everything you see may look great, but God desires something greater for you. Right? So as we remember, these are some of the things we're doing. And then last week we read the Jesus of Nicodemus and talked about remembering when I have saved. And we looked at this idea of being born again. That Jesus just doesn't call us to a decision, but to a lifetime of decisions. A lifetime where every single day we wake up surrendering to the Spirit. Where every single moment of our waking being, where we're looking at Jesus and living and trying to follow Him. Where every single moment we're trying to live in a way that we're dwelling or abiding as we look in the passage this morning in God's presence. But this morning we're going to look at remember why. Why has God been revealed? And this is one of my favorite ones so far, maybe my favorite one in the series, because Jesus is going to answer: why am I being revealed? Simple because I love you, because I have chosen you. What a blessing to know that the God of all creation is the God of us individually as well. To the God who speaks the world into existence, the God who fearfully and wonderfully made you, that God may be the God who loves everyone, but God also loves you perfectly and distinctly. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 9 to 17. Um, John 15, starting at verse 9. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much that you love and chose us. Jesus, our Messiah, we thank you so much that you love and chose us. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you love and chose us. Father God, you so loved us, you sent us your Son. You so loved us, you sent us the Spirit. You so loved us, you gifted us with one another. But Jesus Christ, we thank you that you so loved us, that you were willing to leave heaven, that you who lived in radiance, stuck on skin, that you lived in love to show us how to please God. That you went to Calvary's tree, not only to die, but to conquer death and destruction once and for all. That you were raised and that you were alive, that you promised to one day come back for us. We thank you for your love and for choosing us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you still love us. That you convict us and turn us to Christ. That you, once we believe, come inside and make home with us. That each day when surrendered to you, we are empowered, not only with our skills, gifts and abilities, but with all of ourselves to live in a way that can please God, to live in a way that makes it on earth as it is in heaven, to live as part of this body, this community, to serve you and to serve you with all we can. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. In 1998, I was 15 years old, um, very formative time in the life of a young man. Um, and actually, one of the most formative things that happened in 1998 was there was a record that was released by I think Reunion Records. It was Rich Mullins, Uh, it was a posthumous album, uh, meaning that it was released after he had died. And the name of the album was the Jesus Record. Uh, Rich Mullins was uh, one of the biggest stars, I think in the 80s and even the 90s in Christianity. He had written for a bunch of people. And my introduction to him came in a cassette tape from a, a lady named Harriet who went to our church who worked at the Mustard Seed, which was a, a Christian bookstore. And they still had those things, right? Um, and she gave me this cassette. And I, I fell in love with Rich Wolves because I felt for the first time like I, because I, I, back then, I know this doesn't happen, you know? Christian music doesn't do this anymore. But back then, when I was growing up, Christian music you weren't sure if they were singing about their girlfriend or Jesus. It was very, very confusing, you know? It's like, like, you'd be singing, I Want to Fall in Love with You and I. Like, Are we talking about Jesus here? Like, this feels a little weird, right? But Rich Mullins wasn't like that. With Rich Mullins, I felt like I was actually like, oh, this is in the Bible. This is amazing. Like, this is actually the Bible comes to life. Uh, but what I love about the Jesus record, and actually looking back this week especially, it made me realize that this is probably the soundtrack to me becoming an Anabaptist. The church I grew up in, one of the things we did every Sunday, is we had the service where we focused on who is Jesus, why does that matter? Who does Jesus mean to you? So I kind of feel like I was being trained to become Jesus-centered and Jesus-focused. But when I got this Jesus record, I finally had like the soundtrack to it. You know, and, and what I love about this record is that you know it was recorded. He never got to make it. He never made it to the studio to finalize it. So all we initially had—I say we, like I was part of the team, and I was there too, right? All we initially had was um, the demo. And these demos were literally like this recorder that he had. He found an abandoned church. I think it was like an abandoned piano, maybe a guitar in this car. And he records, you know, nine songs. In the original, we had about ten songs about Jesus, but he only recorded nine. And then the album is a double album because then his friends were like, they went to the studio and then they doctored it up and actually finished the songs, right? But What I love about this is that this is a deeply personal album. And what I mean by personal is that Rich isn't necessarily struggling with Jesus, but he's talking about his relationship with Jesus. So in this album, you'll have Jesus. You'll have songs where he talks about how Jesus, yeah, he might be the one who's in radiance and took on skin, but it seems, Jesus, that right now you're playing hard to get. But in the very next song, he'll be like, but no, but surely God is with us. You know, the very next song, he'll talk about how, you know, Jesus went to Calvary Street because he saw heaven in his eyes, right? But in the next song, he'll be like, what was wrong with this Jesus guy that, like, Literally, the prostitutes and, and then the, 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 the streets feel like all these people, they're the ones who seem to be drawn to him. What is it about this Jesus? But it's also deeply personal because I realized that a lot of the things that I understood about Jesus comes to light in this album. This concept of living and loving like Jesus, if you've been around here, you've probably heard me say that at least a million times, right? I think it was born in this album, but more than this album, it's born in John 15. It's born in this idea that when Jesus says, remember why, yes, it's because I love you and I chose you, but I'm calling you to something. In this deeply personal album, Rich is answering time and time again, this is who Jesus is, this is why Jesus matters. But of all the songs on this album, for almost, oh wow, oh, oh, over 20 years now, it's like almost 20 years, no, it's over 20 years now. You know, For over almost 25 years now, There's one song in this album that's meant the most to me, right? And this song is called that, Where I Am, There You May Also Be. And what I love about this song is it's not just about who is Jesus, why Jesus is important. Rich basically makes a summary of John 14 and 15. And in John 14 and 15, Jesus is going to do three things, right? First, he's going to make this this promise. Then he's going to make a pledge. And then he's going to leave us with this passionate plea. So as we think this morning, remembering why Jesus has been, or why God has been revealed in Jesus, I think the answer is going to be because of this promise, because of this pledge, because of this beat, that we're going to see that God has been revealed so that we know that we are loved and we've been chosen. So what is the promise? The promise starts in John 14 when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. It is a familiar passage for those of us who grew up in Sunday school with the little book and we had the song called Countdown, right? Ten and nine, eight and seven, six and five and four. If you I said thirty last little thing, but I'm gonna go thirty-five. If you're ever 35 and you grew up in church, you probably sang that song. Maybe not, then I don't know what to do with you. But at the end of that passage, you recite John 14, 3. So I thought I knew this verse, right? Jesus is promising to not only be ascended into heaven, but to go and prepare a place for us. And I've always thought that was amazing. I've always thought it was amazing that God can speak the world into existence, but for heaven, he wants to prepare it. He wants to take his time to not only create, but curate it, meaning he's going to make it perfectly, your space in heaven, perfect for you. But then years later, I found out that this isn't just a promise that Jesus made, but it's actually a promise that every single groom in that culture would have made to their bride. You see, because in that culture what would happen is the parents would get together, and they'd be like, oh, I think this is a suitable match between son and daughter, and it would take it to the daughter, and she'd be like, well, actually, Hank, we're gonna pass on that one day, i try again, right? But eventually she'd find the right person, and if she found the right person that she thought was a match, the parents would agree, the kids would agree, there'd be a great great celebration, and they would have this engagement party. And at the engagement party, this is what the group would stand up and say. In my father's house, it's a big house, There's many, many rooms. But I'm actually going to go back to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a special place just for us. And when that place is done and my father gives me the okay, I'm going to come back. Why? Because where I am, there you may also be. So when you see this promise that Jesus is making, it's kind of our engagement party promise. Jesus isn't just making this thing because he's like, oh, this is a great analogy, and metaphor. Jesus is saying something every groom would have said to every bride and he wants us to know. That where he is, that's where he wants us to be. So when Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many, many rooms, that's the engagement promise. But what I also love about this passage is that, you know, sometimes the grooms would, would, would start building the room, and they would have the four walls, and they think they'd be ready, and they go back to the Father, and the Father would be like, well, son, the, the walls look good, but you might want to invest in a roof, right? And the groom would be like, okay, cool, cool, that spend spend weeks, you know, building the roof, building the roof, and then when that was done, it be like, well, son, I know you like your mom's cooking, but like you need to start cooking too, and your wife might want to cook sometimes too, so you should probably figure out some kind of kitchen, right? And the thing about this is though the groom is working on the house and creating a space, the groom never knew when the house was ready because the father would be like, okay, now it's ready. Now you can go get your bride. So we start off in John 14 with this engagement promise that I'm going to prepare a place for you. But then the second thing is you get this loving pledge where Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself. Why? That where I am, there you may also be. And this loving pledge from Jesus is that all I desire is to be with you forever. And that's what I'm working on in heaven. That's what I'm doing right now. It's making it perfect. And when the Father says it's perfect, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, that you may also be. But then we get to the end of this John 15, where we stop today, 9 to 17, where Jesus makes this passionate plea. And the passionate plea is simply this. Yes, I'm in heaven making it perfect for you. Yes, I'll come again to receive you unto myself. But in the meantime, while you wait for it to be perfect, while you wait for me to come back, what I want you to do is to love as I have loved. Because I'm making heaven, because that's where you will be with me. When I come back, you will be with me. But I also think Jesus is saying, while you're here, if you're loving, you will be with me there too. So in John 15, it starts off with this beautiful analogy where Jesus says, you know, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And I thought that was just a really, really good analogy. I'm not really, um, I know you probably, you probably would have guess this, but I'm not really the best gardener. And you know, I know it's shocking to some of you. I just look like I have a green thumb. I'm someone who loves me dearly bought me a plant. And they specifically bought me a plant for my office. And they specifically bought a plant that literally needs water maybe once a week. Right? Like, it's not really like high standards. It's like, hey, we don't think you can kill this one. Just once a week. Let's just say I had a meeting in my office this week, and I noticed. That missed a few weeks. Maybe a few months, but we don't know. We just know it's holding on for dear life. So I say all that to say, like, if I mess up this explaining analogy, just know I don't have a green thumb. But there's something very significant in Jesus saying, I am divine. First of all, (laughs) Israel considered itself divine. Israel considered themselves the fulfillment of God's promises. Israel considered themselves, literally, that God's purposes were fulfilled in Israel. So when Jesus comes up and says, I am the vine, he's not just saying, let me tell you using a really good analogy. Let me tell you using a really good metaphor or example to explain this. Jesus is saying, oh, you thought that you, Israel, was the completion of God's promises. You thought that you were what God was all about. You thought that God was only going to be revealed to you. But here's the thing, God is revealed in me. So if you're keeping count, this might be the third thing that Jesus could say that might get him killed, right? I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the Messiah. I know you think you're important, but you're actually not important at all. It's actually me that's important. That's the fulfillment of God's promises. And then he gets to the second part. He's like, well, if I'm the vine and you are the branches, then my father is the gardener. And God has a better green thumb than I do. Look around you. It's beautiful, right? And we probably got rid of most of the trees that used to be here. But that's another message, right? But when you think about the idea of pruning, I have to confess, I grew up in church. Whenever they told me God was pruning me, it sounded like punishment. Never sounded good, right? Even the word pruning doesn't sound good. They're like, I got to prune something. No one's like, yes, let's go prune, right? But here's what I learned about pruning this week. You know, if you have roses, you know? if you don't prune them, what tends to happen is the rose might grow inward, or the rose might grow inward, and when it grows inward, it doesn't have enough sunshine, and the rose can never fully bloom. And then someone who's a little bit better gardener than I am, doesn't take much, actually came back and says, oh, no, not only is it growing inward, and it doesn't fully bloom, but if you're able to cut off the roses that are growing inward, that energy that was growing the bad roses is actually going to flow to the good. I see some people nodding. The three gardeners in here are like, yeah, hey, I'm proud of you too. This is making sense to you anyway. All right? So not only the roses stop growing inward, but the energy that was going towards those roses that are growing inward are going to now go into the roses to go outward so they can do. And I think that's how we need to understand when God prunes us. God doesn't prune us to punish us. God prunes us so that we can actually be not only the best version of ourselves, but that we can actually be Christ-like and look like his son, Jesus. When God prunes us, it's so that we can be our true self, to be the people God desires us to be. When God prunes us, it's to reorient us, right? To take our energy from going inward, to take our energy that's running from the sun, to actually pour outward so that we can bloom for our world and i love that this idea that something i think it's a good reminder for us right and then when she was talking I was like oh this makes sense because here's the thing when we grow so inward when we become so inner focused it becomes harder to not only get the sun but to look up at the sun and when a message to us that when god prunes us not only are we to stop looking in 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 but when you look up the sun does as the sun not only shines on you but it allows you it allows you to fully Bloom. So God is our gardener, and so when he prunes, and so we can be that best version of ourselves, but it's
1: also so that we can then go out and what? Bear more fruit. And
0: in this passage, in the first eight verses anyway, he talks a lot about God being um, where we can abide. And this idea of abiding branches is really, really interesting to me. Because when we abide, the idea here is that we need to do the work of keeping in touch with God, of keeping in tune with God, of of, of knowing God and being known by God, which means it's something intentional we have to do. We have to learn how to not only surrender to the Spirit, but to actually rest in God's hands. We have to learn not only to, to look at Jesus, but to actually follow Jesus, surrender to Jesus. We have to learn to not only say, okay, this is where I want to tap into God's presence, When we're in God's presence, we have to learn to not only relax, but to listen so that we can hear God's voice. And so I grew up thinking abiding, especially in this passage, is about us and God, right? And Jesus says, remain in God like I remain in God, and you will be blessed. Love the way I love, you will be blessed. But here's something that's interesting about branches. Branches are usually part of this thing we call a tree. And as soon as you take the branch out of the tree, it stops being a part of the tree, and it's just a branch. So I think, I think this idea of abiding is not just between us and God. And I think we need to hear this because we as Western Christians have so individualized our faith. And there's so many of us when we say, how are you doing? We talk about, how am I doing with my God? How am I doing my relationship with God? But here's the thing, you're still part of the family. You're still part of the tree. So abiding has to be not only being in tune with God, not only surrendering in God's presence and submitting to God, not only living and and, and being fed by God, but it also has to be members of the body, has to be members of this tree. Because God doesn't want to cut off our branch and take us out of the tree. Which means that part of abiding means that there is no such thing as solitary Christianity. There is no such thing as just me and God. Abiding must mean yes, I'm submitting to God, but I'm also submitting to the body of Christ. Abiding must mean, yes, I'm resting in God's presence and being intentional about that, but it also must mean I must be intentional to be part of God's body. It must mean that, yes, I'm connecting with God, but it also means that the onus is on me, actually, to connect with the body as well. The call to abide is not just between you and God, because our faith is not just between us and God. God cares about not just you. But Jesus came for the world. And God has saved you, not just for you, but for your world too. Because God needs you with your unique gifts and skills and abilities. God needs you with your unique story, with your unique mind, body, and soul and what you've been through. God needs you to not only abide in him, to not only abide in this family, but to actually go out and shed that fruit. So when we abide, that's what we do. Because abiding branches, are not just one that are connected to the gardener but are connected to one another and I love that because i think that is a challenge because I grew up thinking when we abide it's between me and god and, and being in tune with god but Jesus seems to be thinking also that you not just have to be in tune with god you have to be in tune with your community around you and you not just have to surrender to God but you have to be willing to surrender to the body around you and not just this physical H-baked body but literally what God has revealed for thousands of really who God has been to you. So we do all that before we get to 9 to 17. And in 9 to 17, Jesus starts off by saying, I want you to love because I have loved. And the same way I have loved you is the same way the Father has loved me. And I think that's a challenge. Because here's the thing. We live in a world where the best that we can hope for is they tell us to what? Treat people how you want to be treated. And Jesus seems to think that's not good enough. We tend to think it's like, I will love or I will forgive those who forgive me. I will care for those who care for me. And Jesus seems to think that's not good enough. Because here's the thing, you don't have to follow Jesus to treat people how you want to be treated. You don't have to follow Jesus to love people who love you back. You do have to follow and submit to Jesus to love people the way God loves them. To not only love them, to actively put them first. We live in a world that's all about me and mine, and Jesus seems to think that you need to care more about your sister and brother than you herself. When Jesus says, love as I have loved, the command isn't to say, I'm going to try my best. It's to look at the example of Jesus. So the challenge to us becomes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, with the people on the street that we meet, with everyone we interact with, are we loving them the way they love us? Are we treating them the way we think they should be treated? Or are we loving them the way Christ has loved us? And what's interesting is I think Jesus identifies love two different ways in this passage. And the first way kind of contradicts how we think of love. Because Jesus seems to think that by abiding and remaining in his love, you have to keep his commands. So Jesus here is identifying love not as what we feel, not as even as what we know, not as what we experience, which is counterintuitive to everything we have in 2021, everything we probably had in human history. Jesus identifies love in this passage, not with what you know, not with what you experience, not even with what you think. He identifies love as what? Submitting to my commands. And that's a little bit harder. Because if love is what I feel, it feels good sometimes where I can tell you how I feel if love is what I experience, I can tell you about my experiences. If love is, is, is what I know, I can tell you what I know and what I found. But Jesus seems to think that if you're going to abide and you're going to love the way I love, you have to submit to my commands. But the second way that he identifies love is this idea of abiding with one another as well. So love is not just being good with God. It's being good with your neighbor being good with your sister and brother, is moving from knowing the body of Christ to being actively the body of Christ. It's asking this question, do my neighbors know that I love Jesus, and what does that look like? Do the people I work with know that I love Jesus, and what does that look like? Do the people who see me walking down the street see the light of Jesus in me, and what does that look like? When the words come out of my mouth, are they giving praise to God or at least opening the door to God or are they just joining in and helping us to look internally instead of looking up? Jesus calls us to abide. And then I think the other way he identifies love is that he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down their lives for their friends. And we know the example of Jesus. He can say this because this is what he did. And most of us will probably never be in a setting where well, we have to put our physical life on the line for someone else. But I think what this passage is saying is, if abiding is, is submitting to God, and abiding is submitting to the community, then loving them must not just mean you physically dying. Loving them in this way must mean that your life should be characterized not by what you did for yourself, not by what you built up for yourself, not by what you accomplished for yourself, not by all the heights you scaled, but if you follow Jesus, your life should literally be about laying it down for your sister and your brother. It's not about what you accomplish. It's about what we accomplish. It's not just about how you shine. It's about how did you enable others to shine for God's glory. It's not about what you have. It's about what you can give. I think that's the challenge because we want to shine ourselves. But God says, no, I need you to not only submit and surrender, I need you to live for the other person. So that's a question that we all have to ask. Do my family, when they look at me, do they see how I'm putting them first? Do my coworkers, when they look at me, do they see how I'm putting them first? Do my neighbors, when they look at my family, do they see how we're putting them first? Or at least loving them the way Jesus wants us to love them. And I love that he ends this passage with a simple idea. You are my friends, he says. But he qualifies it. You're my friends if you love the way I love. And I think that's interesting because there's two people, there's some biblical scholars in the room, so you might find a third or a fourth or a fifth. But there's two people I remember who get called friend of God in the Old Testament. And I think it's interesting that the first one is Abraham. And in Abraham, you have this promise That God is one day going to save all the families of the earth. That God is one day going to send a son that will literally save all the families of the earth. That Abraham, you're just the beginning of all my future promises. And the second person that's called a friend of God is Moses. I think it's interesting that Moses was the one that God prepared the way and, and chose to go down into Egypt and bring those people out of slavery and help deliver them to the promised land. And I love That what Abraham was promised, Jesus fulfilled. That what Moses started, Jesus completed. Because Jesus didn't just take us out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus healed us and took us out of slavery from sin. Jesus not only saved us, but he redeemed us so that we can now be our true selves and who God created us to be. Jesus started, though, Jesus completed the work that Moses began. But now that same Jesus, that same Jesus, says, you can be a friend of God if you obey his commands. I think that's very important because I want to think I'm a friend of God because that's what I feel and that's what he feels because God loves me. I want to think I'm a friend of God because you know of what God has done for me in my life and my experience. I want to think I'm a friend of God because of what I know. And you might find scriptural text to back up all of that, but in John 15, You're identified as a friend of God by your willingness to submit to God's commands. So this week, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go through, you can do it every day, you know, we need need at least one overachiever in the class, right, but I want you to at least spend some time this week reading through John 14 and John 15. And as you read those two chapters, I want you to remember these six things. Number one, I want you to remember that God loves you. It sounds very simple. Hopefully we all know that. But I think because we're so good at looking inside, we're so good at looking down, we're so good at being overwhelmed by the world around us, it's so easy to forget that simple truth, that God loves you. And I think for so many people who are struggling with so many things, whether it's addictions or afflictions, whether it's you know, strong negative feelings or just not knowing where we are in the world, I just want you to read John 14 and 15 and remind yourself this week that God loves me. The second thing I want you to hold on to this week is that God chose you. Because I always thought it was amazing, God loves everyone. But it just seems so automatic to me. But then I need to hold on to verses where it says, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You are my workmanship. You are my masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God didn't just create the whole world and love the whole world. God loves you. Your gifts, your skills, your abilities, your mind, your body, your soul, the heart of you, the essence of you, your story, your experience. Everything about you, God loves and God is redeeming for his glory. The third thing I want you to hold on to is that true disciples abide with God and abide with community. That true disciples are working and being intentional about being in tune with God, but also being intentional about being in tune to the community. They're intentional about submitting to God, but they're also intentional about submitting to the community. The fourth thing I want us to hold on to, and this is the hardest one for me, is that remember that God is pruning you so that not only can you shine and be your true self, so that you can go and bear much more fruit. I think of pruning as punishment, but hopefully, hopefully we're all start thinking of pruning as God growing us, as God helping us to shine and bloom Is God creating us to be our true self. And then the last two I want us to hold on to is that when we obey God, at least according to John 15, that's loving God. When we submit to God's commands, that's loving God. And what does love look like in our lives? I hope all of us, all of us are living in a way that we're truly not treating people they ought to be treated or treating people the way they want to be treated, but I hope That our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, even the people around the street, the people in this park, I pray that they all look at us and we're living in a way that we're loving them the way God loves them. Remember why God has been revealed? Because he loves us and because he chose us. What has God chosen us to do? To live and love like our Christ lived and loved. Um, I'd like to invite Pastor Bree to be helping me with communion. Um, As I was thinking about this, Jesus has his promise, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He makes his pledge. When I come back, he'll be with me. And then he makes this plea, this passionate plea, which is, love as I have loved. And I was thinking about how in in, in Christian history, when we think about Jesus' passion, we we literally limit it to entering into Jerusalem and going up to heaven. That's Jesus' passion. But I think our passion should be more than how we died and what happened after. So I think Jesus' passion can be expanded to what he did when he was here. And what he did when he was here was love. So as we take communion this morning, I believe this is a chance to journey again with Jesus, not just from Jerusalem to heaven, but looking back at his life, and what characterized his life was love. And as we take the bread, and as we take the cup, we're reminded why God loves us, and it's simply because he's chosen us simply because that's who my God is. As you came in, you hopefully got the elements up front. If you need time to go get them, feel free to go get that. As I start with um, the liturgy, I was like, what do we call that? It feels weird coming out enough, but yeah. My papers are cooperating, so I said liturgy. That's a sign. In the next moment, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. Um, at this church, we do not require that you be a member of the Harrisburg of in Christ Church. We just require, as scripture, uh, that you be a member of Christ Church, that you are a follower and believer in Jesus Christ. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. When I invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may, come to testify not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for freely, for lovingly, for willingly going to Calvary tree. We thank you that in your sacrifice, we can know victory. In your conquering of death and sin forever, we can be redeemed and set free. Lord, we thank you that you were broken so that we can be healed. We thank you that you suffered so that we can know life. We thank you that you are triumphant so that we can celebrate and today we take one step in that celebration where we endure and we long for today day when we'll celebrate at your table. But now, Lord, we just give thanks for your sacrifice because in it we see your ultimate love for us, your holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, we have a prompt that we normally do. Um, I will read the first half of it, and your part will be, This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful.
2: in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing and he told his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance for me. Let us pray. Father we thank you for the blood poured out we thank you for choosing us even though we would sin again and we would turn away. Father may we grow in the knowledge of your incredible love for us. Show us how to abide in you. And as we abide in you, Lord, may your love just overflow in us, in our lives, to others. May we have your heart for other people. And as we grow, Lord, may you continue to show us how to submit, how to lay our lives down in love and service for others. And we thank you so much for doing it for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a prompt, and your response will be, This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we
0: bless is the communion of the blood of Christ.
2: Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together, and be thankful. If you're not close
0: to a trash can. I think the deacons will be, a, we have two deacons will be around with baskets to collect these. Um, as we sing this last song, How Deep the Father's Love, we just went on to the simple fact that God not only loves us, but God chose us. Um, I'd like to invite you to stand as we sing. Pastors Woody and Carmen will also be up front. If you want to come up with prayer for anything you've got going on, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, let's stand and sing together. invites us to follow him so that he can do even greater things in this world that we see through us. I love that the God who hovers over all the earth is the same God who now lives inside of those of us who believe and who submit and surrender. God has chosen to be revealed to us. And this week, if we say, why has God been chosen to be revealed? Our answer can simply be because he loves us and because he's chosen us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. That, yes, you spoke the world into existence, but you fearfully and wonderfully made all of us. So, God, we thank you for our individual gifts and skills and abilities, for our individual histories and experiences. Lord, for our mind, bodies, and soul. Lord, we submit all of those to you that you may use us to be part of your work in this kingdom, to be part of your work in our world. Holy Spirit, we thank you for not only hovering around the earth and where we can see the fingerprints of God everywhere, but we thank you for living inside of us. Teach us how to surrender to you every single day. Teach us how to hear the voice of God and teach us how to keep our eyes trained up on Jesus, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you not only came to this earth, but that you died on Calvary Street so that we can be redeemed and set free. Lord, we thank you that you've gone up to heaven and that even right now you're creating and curating it so that it can be perfect for us, that where you are, that we may also be. But Lord, we thank you that on this side of heaven, With every breath in our lungs, we invite us to simply live the way you live and love the way you love. So God, help us. Spirit, empower us. Father, carry us to be people who love God and love one another. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen? Amen. God bless you all.